0: The passage we will be looking at for the sermon this afternoon is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. We finished off at verse 10. We're going the sermon this morning is covering verse 11 and 12. So we will be reading that together. And there we read, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh." which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, it may not be obvious, but our passage this afternoon is a point of transition in Peter's letter to the believers in Asia Minor. Having discussed who the Christian is, Peter is now addressing the beloved with how they must live out this identity. For this reason, it would be good for us to consider the previous verses before looking at our specific passage. And what we notice in verse 9 through 10 is that since God has caused Christians to be born again, they are a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood, they are a holy nation, and they are God's a people of God's own possession. And for this reason, Christians are beneficiaries of God's mercy. All these titles are granted to them through the faith that has been worked in them and unites them with Jesus Christ. In this, we notice an expression of God's love and grace. And the address, Beloved, reflects this reality. When Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, we are told in Mark 1 verse 11 that a voice came from heaven which spoke these words, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so, brothers and sisters, Christians share in this anointing of the Holy Spirit by faith, So they are sons and daughters of the Most High God, deemed worthy to be addressed as beloved. What this means, of course, is that since they are possessions of God, who is in heaven, they are now citizens of his kingdom, and their allegiance has been claimed by him. So Peter rightly calls the Christians sojourners, And exiles. This is a reminder to them that their journey on earth is but a temporary one and that one day they will be restored to their promised eternal dwelling place which is in the presence of God. It would be good for us to remember beloved that this applies to God's people of all times and places. This was the case for Abraham for the Christians in Asia Minor, and is still the case for us today. This leads us to another consideration of this passage. Whereas prior to this passage, Peter was keen on explaining to the Christians who they are, now Peter changes his focus to emphasize how they must behave. Now, remember that Peter is writing to Christians in a first-century Roman world. They are just a few decades removed from Jesus walking the earth. The Holy Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost, and Christianity is evidently spreading across the empire. Although this is the case, it is a world of increased frustration towards Christians. And the Roman emperor, Emperor Nero, is not about to declare them a protected special interest group. So they are facing many spiritual pressures, internally and externally. Internally, as their life was to be dedicated to battling sin, and externally, as they interact with the world around them while being a reflection of God's work in them. And this is Peter's concern here. The eternal welfare of all people. Their salvation. With this in mind, I present the living word to you this afternoon under this theme. Peter urges the beloved to live as God's people. And we'll see in our first point... He does so for their own salvation. And in the second point, he does so for the salvation of others. The first point then, for their own salvation. Having explained to the Christians who God has declared them to be, Peter now sees it necessary to exhort or preach to them about their walk of life. The first of these exhortations we find in verse 11, where we will read once again, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is the first item that Peter urges the Christians to do to abstain or refrain or distance themselves from the passions of the flesh. And what does Peter mean when he says passions of the flesh? Well, although Peter does not explicitly mention, that, mention here at this moment in this text what he is referring to, later in chapter 4, he provides us with an idea of what he has in mind. So it would be good for us to read these activities. If your Bibles are open, you can can follow along. So chapter 4, and we will begin at verse 3. So chapter 4, verse 3, where we read, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And here's the, the list. Living in sensuality, passions drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That last one, lawless idolatry, it it can be thought of as anything outside of God that demands devotion to ourselves. It is obvious that these lifestyles directly contrast the life that Peter mentions in chapter one. Where in verse 13, he told the Christians to prepare their minds for action and to be sober-minded and to set their hope fully, fully, not partially, but fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to write why, why they must abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is because they wage war against the soul. Beloved, every war has two sides. In this war against the believer's soul, on the one side we have the kingdom of light, where Christ is king and the believer has been drafted. And on the other side we have the kingdom of darkness, where the ever-eager devil and his demons are are. Are active Now, this may cause us to pause and think. Hey, ha- has not the battle been won? Christ has died. He has risen. Has he not claimed victory for us? Yes, he has, brothers and sisters. As the elect, we are certain of his victory. And, and we live in that victory. However, in the aftermath of wars... Even once one side claims victory, there are still battles that go on. During World War II, for example, the German high command refused to accept that they had lost the war. And for months, the war dragged on, claiming many lives from both sides. So too, the devil and his demons, they dig down, they trench in refusing to surrender, and trying desperately to take down as many souls as possible. This may leave us discouraged. It forces us to accept that as sojourners here on earth, the dangers are are still present. However, beloved, God does not leave our souls unattended. Oh no, He faithfully equips us for the battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, which we read, Paul reminds the believer of the armor that God provides his soldiers. And that includes you as well, boys and girls. You too are in the Lord's army. So you too are given armor. This armor, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the others, is the reason we are able to withstand the schemes of the devil. As we can imagine, God does not leave his people on the battlefield unattended. No, not at all. He provides us with an ample defensive arsenal. We are fully equipped by God to defend our souls from the enemy. Let us then not live as those who do not have armor. As God's children, we are called to, and we, and we read this in verse 9, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. It can happen that those fully equipped with the armor of God become arrogant, proud, complacent, and decide not to use what God has provided. The, The flaming darts, they come, but they do not raise their shield in defense. In fact, some may actively position themselves in harm's way, inviting the blows of the enemy upon the body. And after a while, the damage becomes great, and it may happen that they no longer will desire to proclaim the excellencies of King Jesus as vibrant as they once did. And eventually that those joyful shouts of, I am free through him who ransomed me, will become cries of despair as they find themselves enslaved by the enemy. If this is where any of you find yourself this morning, my family, enslaved by the passions of the flesh and darkness filling your heart, say this prayer with me in your hearts. Lord, I am lost in the darkness. Please, my King, come and rescue me. You know the battlefield well as you walked upon it yourself in perfect obedience. Penetrate the darkness of my heart with your radiant light so that I may no longer live a life of arrogance but desire to do your will. That I may be willing to profess your goodness and exalt your name among the nations and that i may bear fruits of thankfulness before you lord jesus equip me with your word and spirit that i may actively battle sin amen brothers and sisters peter writes in verse 14 of chapter 1 Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter warns that human ignorance leads to conformity to the passions of the flesh. This is why we pray for our wills to be transformed more and more to God's will, and that as a result, Our conduct our actions may demonstrate God's mercy does this ring a bell this is how our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ lived his life and he did so he did so so perfectly and we are called to strive to be imitators of him and this will lead us to our second point That is, Peter urges the beloved to live as God's people for the salvation of others. In our second point and exhortation, Peter issues another command towards believers. but But now it is centered on how the Christians behave in the world. Having placed the importance in the first exhortation on the believer's eternal well-being, Peter transitions to how the believer's actions must reflect this well-being. He writes in verse 12, and I'll have to find the passage back a moment. He writes in verse 12 verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The identity of the Gentiles should be considered as as those who do not desire to do God's will, those yet living in their ignorance. And among such people we are to behave honorably. And what does that mean? Behave honorably. There are a couple of things we need to keep in mind, brothers and sisters. The Christians, having been transformed, the Christians' reason for behaving honorably has, has changed. We do not behave honorably simply to garner respect in the communities in which we live, but rather to proclaim God's excellencies through our deeds. That is the main purpose. It is an act of Beautiful obedience to the king. And why is it that Peter commands the Christians to behave in a way that proclaims God's excellencies? Because, as we read on, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may they may see your good deeds. They may see your good deeds. Beloved, Peter knows that the world is watching, whether it be the church at large or whether it be individual believers, the world is watching. That is why the believer's behavior is so important, because we are not representing just ourselves, but also the king, that is Jesus, who has claimed us. As, as a way of illustration, we can think of our Canadian, Australian, or South African citizenship. Citizens that travel to another country, such as Canada to Brazil, or Australia, or Australia to Indonesia, they, they will be observed by the locals in those, in those areas. The locals likely will form perceptions of the country we come from, by how we behave. If we behave poorly, the country we represent will be thought of as poorly. If we behave well, the country we represent will be thought of as well among all the locals. So too, a similar scenario can happen with the behavior of the believer. How the professed Christian behaves on earth speaks volumes to the world. Now we must be careful here, brothers and sisters. Often our our impulse is to make sure that the world does not speak poorly of us. This fear of being spoken poorly of can cause us to compromise, compromise the other way. Let us not overlook the phrase "when they speak against you as evildoers." It is not a matter of if but when it is inevitable it is not uncommon for for his faithful church to be on the receiving end of the venomous speech of groups such as the lgbtq or pro-abortion communities those living in ignorance will always speak evil of the church slandering his bride So we should not be shocked when confronted by slanderers. Remember God's rebuke toward the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. This enmity has remained in the world from that point onwards. It even brought about the death of Jesus, sealing the victory for all believers. As God's children, then, it is important to turn back to the command. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that we can be reminded of what is honorable in God's eyes. There is no room for compromise when it comes to the word. It is a battle of the wills, God's will versus our own, and we pray to be conformed to God's will. Since the Gentiles or or unbelievers act in their ignorance by speaking against Christians, there is ever more of a significance for the believer to do good good deeds. As Peter explains in in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And also in in chapter 3, verse 16, where Peter writes, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The hope is, beloved, that the more and more good deeds that are done out of true faith by the believer, that this will eventually be noticed. By the unbeliever. If we were to mark the the process of conversion for the unbeliever, it, it may look something like this The unbeliever slanders the Christian out of ignorance. The unbeliever notices and is silenced by the good deeds of the Christian. The unbeliever is shamed by the good deeds of the Christian. And the unbeliever may be won by pure conduct pure conduct we notice in chapter 3 verse 1 that the wife may win her husband over without a word and in verse 2 we read that this may happen by by her husband seeing seeing her respectful and pure conduct without a word beloved what wonders the holy spirit can do and what we notice at every step of the, in the process is the mercy of God unfolding. Eventually, God causes the unbeliever to be born again to a living hope. Just as the Christian was in chapter 1. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and the new believer will glorify God, it is without a doubt a miracle Let's reflect upon our our current surroundings. Here we are as believers living in Edmonton, Alberta. Are we active and visible within our community? Is there opportunity for unbelievers to look upon the good deeds of believers? Do we volunteer time at soup kitchens to attend to the poor? Or at old age homes to read and pray with the elderly when a coworker is having a rough day do we offer words of encouragement or do we just go about our own business business owners do we operate with integrity that reflects a godly person children when you are playing at the playground at the local park are you Kind to the other boys and girls? There there are so many other examples, beloved. Are we aware of the potential impact of our actions? Let us take this exhortation by God seriously and be diligent in our walk of life so that if the Lord wills it, one day we may be able to call our workplace friend, brother, brother. Or sister in Christ. Or or our playground friend. Brother or sister in Christ. In both of these exhortations this morning, abstaining from the passions of the flesh and the command for believers to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable, we notice God's mercy and love. In verse 11, Peter is concerned about the salvation of the believer. And in verse 12, he is concerned about the salvation of the unbeliever. This is an an incredible reminder that our God cares for, sustains, and governs all souls on earth. And he continues to gather all his elect to himself in preparation for the day of visitation, which we notice at the end of verse 12. So that all those who repent may glorify Jesus on that day. But we also witness His justice. For this, is the re- for, for this reason, Peter writes in verse 11, I urge you, because what follows concerns not only salvation, but judgment. So there's a need for urgency. We on earth do not know when the bridegroom will appear to claim his bride, nor do we know when he will die, when we will die. John Owen, a 17th century theologian and pastor, put it this way, Satan's greatest success is in making people think that they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal well-being or welfare. So beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Christians living temporarily on earth, do we truly love our neighbors as God does? Instinctively, we nod our, our heads. Yes, yes, I do. Well then, as we leave this church today with our allegiance firmly established in Jesus Christ, let us in the week ahead surrender ourselves to these exhortations from the living word. We ought to ask God to help us be particularly aware of our actions because those unconvinced may be watching us. In this we we should rejoice because it means two things. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed to those around us by our conduct. And that our own lives are reflecting this gospel in conduct. What this means is that when that moment comes, when Jesus Christ, the good King, makes his incredible return. And if it is his good pleasure, we may share with those we love, whether it be that co-worker or that neighborhood friend the opportunity to glorify and exalt him on that day together. Lord, may it be so. Amen.